0: everything he said he had come to do. That's right. What's interesting about the difference between Gideon and Jesus is Jesus didn't just love his neighbor. He didn't, he didn't just love his entourage like Gideon did. Instead, Jesus loves his enemy too. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 45, here's what he tells his disciples. He says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that, here's why we do it so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Well, how does He interact with His enemies? He makes His Son, His Son, His Son, rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus just said, really interestingly enough, that we are to love two. Prominent groups of people in our life, we are to love our friends and our foes, our neighbors and our nuisances, and that covers about everybody we know, doesn't it? Because everybody's either a friend or a foe. Friends, we are his enemy. Born into sin, we are born the enemy of God. We are Judas's betraying kiss. We are part of the crowd that is chanting, crucify him, crucify him. We are at the cross taunting and mocking him. We are his foe, and yet he offers to forgive us and make us part of his family forever. And we are to respond in kind to others when they treat us the very same way. When when others diss us or doubt us, we are to respond, if you will, the way Jesus did, not the way Jerubbabel, Gideon's nickname, did. We're to respond with warmth, kindness, and open arms, not a whip and a clenched fist like Gideon. Can I just say this pastorally and encourage you with this overall thought? Can we just let God avenge and punish sin? Can we just let Him do it? and acknowledge that he is the punisher of sin and that he is way better at it than any of us ever will be. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but every sin ever committed, every sin ever committed, if the person is not a Christian, they will pay for it in hell for all of eternity, and that's way worse than any scheme we can cook up. Or if they are a Christian... They have repented of it. It has been the wrath of God for that sin has been poured out on Jesus. Who are we to say that somebody else needs to pay for what Jesus says he's already paid the ultimate cost? Mm. In the words of Elzebub, just let it go. Right? Just let it go and let God be the punisher of sin and the avenger of his people. Now, Gideon has already crossed the line He shouldn't have in the Jordan River. There's this really kind of ominous line in the conclusionary verse of him killing the kings of Midian in verse 21 that Gideon is about to begin to cross other lines in the very near near future when it talks about him collecting the ornaments and the gold and things like that. Now, here's what we've seen so far. We've seen Gideon's Anger get him in trouble. Now what we're about to see is Gideon's apostasy create lots of trouble for himself and for Israel moving forward, in particular after his death. So let's talk about this hard walk to the finish. And we need to note that, yes, Gideon's words, is a confusing thing because Gideon's words acknowledge that God is their king, but his works and his worship sort of tell a different story. The men of Israel, they asked Gideon to start uh, a dynastic monarchy. Right? They don't just want him to be their king. They talk about his son and his grandson. Gideon appears to refuse, right? So he says the right thing. But then everything he does after that shows us he doesn't really do the right thing. Part of the spoil of victory over Midian were these golden earrings that they were apparently known for wearing. Gideon melts them down and he creates a golden ephod. It's an an apron-like vest. Now, the high priest of Israel, and this is a very simplistic understanding of it, but the high priest of Israel, when Israel actually had one, would use this vest and the stones and gems that were in it as a means of consultating and seeking guidance from God. This is how they made decisions for the people and found out what it was that God wanted. Now, Gideon's creation doesn't go into a temple or a tabernacle. It stays with him. And this is a little bit my hunch, but it's based on a lot of scholarly support and evidence that Gideon likely uses the ephod to make it look as if he is uh, using the ephod as this medium to God. He He is seeking the guidance of God as he seeks to lead the people. But in reality, Gideon just uses God to rule Israel as their de facto king. Right? Notice that God didn't commission the ephod to be made. This isn't God's ephod. It isn't a a means of consulting God. He didn't commission this ephod to be made. And it becomes an idol. We're going to see that later in the book of Judges. It becomes an idol and it becomes the root of a new religion. And therefore it leads Israel away from God and not nearer to Him. It's all a con game. It's a ruse meant to pull the wool over the eyes of the people of Israel. Or perhaps... Perhaps, if you'll bear with me, they weren't fooled at all, but didn't care. Because they got to have what they wanted, an earthly king, and they got to pretend like God was okay with it. Mm. Oh, how we love it. Oh, how we love it. When we can get what we want to do and still pretend that God is cool with it by dressing it up and disguising it with religious language and pretense. We get to, if you will, have our cake and pretend we have Christ too. Now, we may not have an ephod to ensnare us, but Christians, and I think in particular Christians in the Deep South, we do have, a, we do have something to ensnare us. And it's not an ephod, it's an elephant. Brothers and sisters, Christ is no more represented by the Republican elephant than he was the golden calf or the golden ephod of Gideon. He is king of kings and his platform, his agenda for his rule is the same as it has always been since eternity past. The glory of his name and the good of his people in that order. We say we trust Christ with everything. And then we need a Prozac prescription every four years when the election comes around. (laughs) We say Christ is king, but everything we do says we're looking for a political savior. We say one thing, we say the right thing, but functionally, do our actions bear out and support what we say? Gideon said one thing, he said he wouldn't rule as king. But everything he does after that fact was functionally what a king would do. He even has a large harem of women. You say, how can you say that? Well, he had 77 sons. And unless he had like you know 10 sets of quintuplets, right, that didn't come from one woman, right? In the large harem of women, a very royal, kingly type thing to do. We're even going to meet his son Abimelech. We're, we're just sort of gently introduced to him in this text. We're going to meet him next week. And the name Abimelech actually means my father is king. I think that tells us how Gideon thought of himself and certainly how the people of Israel thought of Gideon. His anger, his apostasy, and his ascension to the throne. They all taint Gideon's biblical reputation and story because while he certainly started out tentatively, tentatively, if you will, he certainly ended terribly. He began well. Now, Gideon, it was imperfect. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, it was imperfect, but it was well. But man, Gideon's finish is sad and his fall is precipitous. And Gideon is really an interesting change in the book of Judges. He begins to really breed a a new group of of judges here. So far, the judges have been seen as admirable men. Now they're sinners still, of course, but, but admirable. Gideon is like he's like the hinge. It's like all of a sudden after Gideon, it's going to get really, really complex. Gideon's complicated. He's the kind of hero we root for, but we're not always sure we should. Right? Well, if Gideon, wait till you meet some of these guys that are coming after him. If Gideon is complicated, then the people who come to lead Israel, not all of them are judges chosen by God, but the people who come to lead Israel after Gideon are like Rubik's Cube, enigmatic, like impossible equations to solve. Right? Gideon has his revenge. And note what Gideon does at the end of his life. He moves on to what most people would. Wealth. Right? They give him the gold. Power. He's the de facto king. Fame. Everybody in Israel would have known who Gideon was in sex. This large harem. Ah. Gideon, at the end of his story, is a rich man. Listen to me, he's rich. He's powerful. He could have had sex with almost any woman he wanted to. And yet nobody leaves the story feeling happy for Gideon. Nobody leaves the story jealous of Gideon, wishing we could have been him, but rather we leave hollow and empty and a little bit sad. And friends, we battle the same battle. We we battle the belief that these very same things will make us happy and fulfilled as well because the culture we live in tells us that they will. Power, money, women, men, fame, influence, and revenge. I would dare say that these are the main motivating factors behind almost every single thing human beings do. They're seeking one of these. Power, money, fame, sex, influence, revenge right? Gideon lost his fight. And I think he lost his fight for a very simple reason. I think it's because he stopped fighting. He thought it was over. He thought he had done it. He thought he had already sort of done everything God had for him to do and he could just go about his way and do his own thing. He stopped fighting. Friends, keep fighting. Victory over sin does not mean that you have completely eradicated and eliminated its presence from your life just yet. Victory over sin on this side of eternity means you're going to get up tomorrow determined to wage war with it all over again. All right. The only way to lose is to stop fighting. Now, let's, let's, let's do this. Let's move into our next step. And let me ask you a couple of questions of application. First, I'd like to know, will you cross the finish line into eternity or will you coast in? <laughs> it's exhausting man this battle with the flesh but it's the only way to slay the dragon within you, you can't kill what you want admits there, acknowledges there and attack too many Christians and I grew up in the church, my dad's a pastor I, I mean I, I've seen this my whole life too many Christians they start off strong and then somewhere along the way we get tired, we get a little bit older and st- like we just say hey that's far enough I've grown enough I've changed enough I've done enough for the kingdom. I'm just going to plant my flag and stay right here until Christ comes back to get me. But if we don't fight, Satan will wear us like a hand puppet, meaning he will control us from within. And our legacy will be a lot like Gideon. We'll be people who had good moments, moments where perhaps God even used us mightily, but our lives will end in a way that leaves a dark stain on our name when people remember us. Finish your fight. Finish it faithfully. And don't cross lines, but cross the finish line. Don't cross lines, but cross the finish line. And cross it exhausted, but sure that God has wronged every ounce of glory from you as was possible, given your status as a finite fallen human being. Gideon crossed lines he shouldn't have. We want to cross the line, but we want to cross the finish line the finish line that God has set before us, the finish line that we know when we cross, we will enter into the eternal rest that God has promised us and has done everything to make sure is secure for us forever. But what do we do? What do we do when we get too tired to run anymore? Anybody ever been there? Okay. One person, thank you. One person still listening. (laughs) I'm going through the notes until I'm done, so you might as well listen, right? So what do we do when we get too tired to keep running? Well, I want to read Hebrews chapter 12, and I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2 because I think it has some encouragement for us. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy That was set before him, he had a race to run, but the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, clearly, for somebody to write this, the author of Hebrews, who I believe is Paul, to write this, clearly the Hebrew Christians had gotten tired. A lot of time had passed since they were fired up for Jesus when they first met him, and now they've gotten tired and weary. But the stakes are too high. This is the message of Hebrews 2. The stakes are too high to stop running the race. It talks about sin clinging so closely. I think about Satan and sin are like pit bulls right on our heels. And we're too tired and we think we can't run another step. But if we do, we'll be eaten up and devoured. It's too much at stake. So a couple of things that I think Hebrews 2 encourages us with. Sorry about that, Josh. Josh. We are not the first people to ever be, to feel worn out, and uh, worn, worn out and weary, right? Like, we have this really weird thing we do when things aren't going well in our life where we assume we're the only person who's ever felt this way in the history of humankind. Well, I know some people are sad, but nobody's ever been as sad as I am right now. Honey, I know you're tired from your hard day of work, but you're, you don't know how tired I am from my day of work. I know the kids are getting on your nerves, but you don't have any idea how badly they're getting on my nerves. Right? We need to remember we are not the first people to feel worn out and weary in the race. We're told that there is a cloud of witnesses by which the author of Hebrews means every true Christian who is already dead they are watching from heaven. They have run the race before us and they are rooting for us as we run our race and they are rooting for us to finish well and that maybe we might learn from the race that they ran. Right? Heaven watches for you as you run. It's paying attention and it's rooting for you to finish well. Now the next things that Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us to do when we're weary is maybe we should get rid of the stuff that's weighing us down. Now, the obvious thing is sin, right? The sin which clings so closely. But we need to note that the text says every weight as well. So it's it's creating another category. It doesn't just mean sin by that. It means anything else that is weighing us down. Friends, it's a race. The Olympics are in a few weeks. You can't win the gold medal with a refrigerator strapped on your back. Right? You can't swim across the Mississippi with a Buick tied to your ankle. Get rid of those things. Perhaps the reason you're so tired, you're so exhausted emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually, is that you're weighed down with things that you can't carry any further. And here's the news of the Word of God. You aren't meant to carry them. They were carried by Christ to the cross. Right. Peter tells us, in First Peter chapter five verse eight, that we are to cast our anxieties. Now isn't that interesting? he, he doesn't say, and Joshua obviously gave you the wrong verse, First Peter chapter five maybe verse seven but but He tells us to cast our anxieties, not our sin, our anxieties, all the things that are weighing us down, all the things that are keeping us up at night, all the things that we're just seeming to battle and get nowhere with. He says to take those things and throw them at the feet of Jesus because we are so sure that He cares for us so deeply He's going to take care of us in whatever it is that is wearing us out at the moment. He says to lay our problems and anxieties off at the feet of Jesus like we do our kids at daycare. Now, I know some of you have never dropped your kids off at daycare. And, you know, you know, gold star, okay? And I don't mean that smart alecky. I don't know how to, but I think you can follow the thing here, okay? Have you ever thought about this? <laughs> you have no idea what happens to your kids when they're at daycare. You just drop them off and go to work. And never give another thought to what's happening during the day. Well, Peter just told us that the throne of God is like daycare for our problems and our anxieties. Drop them off. And trust Jesus to take care of them. Trust Jesus to take care of them. He's way better at it than we are. If you're too tired to run any further, I would say drop the extra weight. <laughs> right? Right? But finally, and most importantly, as we start to wrap up, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus to run the race for you because ultimately, try as you might, you can't run it. You can't. And the good news of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, is that I would say it this way. Jesus has already run the race before you, and he has run the race for you. He is called the author and perfecter of our faith. He came and ran the race, ran the race that we should, but we refused to run because of our sin. He ran the race for you and he ran it perfectly. The perfecter of our faith, he ran it perfectly so we don't have to. He's already won first. It's decided for all of eternity. So stop trying to run faster than him. Right. He is the author and the perfecter. I love that because it means unlike Gideon, he didn't just start out on fire, he finished as well. The perfecter. He finished his race. Now, this is really important that you hear this part. When we present the gospel and call people to respond to the gospel, to the invitation of Christ in the deep south, sometimes we paint the picture that what Jesus solely, only is inviting you into is to go to heaven when you die. Nothing could be more opposite of what the New Testament actually says. What Jesus is inviting you into is certainly the eternal rest right, and joy of heaven, but he's inviting you to come and run the race that he has run with him, to Mm -hmm. join him in the race. Because the truth is, you feel like you've been running, but if you're outside of Christ, you had not even stepped foot on the track yet. Right? So he's inviting us into this. And he promises not just to sort of get us into the race by coming to him, but he promises to stay with us and finish with us the work that he began in salvation when he saved us. The race is won already. We're not trying to win the race. He's already won it. We're just simply trusting him and running the race with him. Right? Now, Dick and Ricky Hoyt were tenacious runners. If you don't know them, there may be a picture of them up on the screen in a minute. They ran 64 marathons, 206 triathlons, and 204, 10K runs. I don't know if they hated themselves or what, but <laughs> this is the stuff they did, okay? That's probably a bad joke given where the rest of this is going. But listen, the, the fact of the matter is I call him Team Hoyt because only half of Team Hoyt can actually run. Ricky, the son, was born with the umbilical cord wrapped around his head. He was left physically crippled as a result. At 15, though... Uh, fathers and sons sometimes that we bond by doing, and so without opportunities to do a lot of the things that fathers and sons do, they'd had a difficult time bonding. But at 15, Ricky asked his dad, can we enter into a benefit 5K? His dad was not a runner, but he was a father looking for a chance to connect with his son. So he loads Ricky up in a three-wheeled wheelchair, and off they went, and they never stopped running until the day they both passed. Now, what's interesting about Team Hoyt is that Ricky has to rely on his dad to do everything. His daddy has to lift him. He has to push him. He has to pedal him. He has to tow him around. Other than a willing heart, right? A heart that wants to do it. Other than a willing heart, Ricky makes no contribution. He is left completely dependent upon the strength of his dad. But here's the neat thing. When they cross the finish line, both of them receive medals. Both of them receive medals because they're a team. And the post race records list both of their names. One of them does all the work, but they both share in the victory, right? In the gospel, friends, Christ does all the work. We get to share in the victory because we bring the salvation and really even to life what Ricky Hoyt brings to the physical work of racing. We want to, but our spiritual legs have no strength. They will never get us across the finish line. So how do we get there? By faith. We jump on the back of Jesus, who is there with us, seeing us through. We ride him across the finish line, determined to never let go, because we realize if he doesn't carry us across, we're going to perish trying. Yes. Jesus started well, was awesome in the middle, and then finished perfectly. Now, I'm going to end the day reading a poem. I've never done this before. I'm going to try not to get emotional. This race, this, this, um, this poem has meant a lot to me over the years. Even before I was a Christian and then becoming a Christian and hearing what the father says to his son, it just means something different for me now. So I'm just going to read with you and I'll see if I can unpack a little bit of why I'm reading it at the end. Whenever I start to hang my head in front of failure's face, my downward fall is broken by the memory of a race. A children's race, young boys, young men, How I remember well, excitement sure, but also fear, it wasn't hard to tell. They all lined up so full of hope, each thought to win that race, or tie for first, or if not that, at least take second place. Their parents watched from off the side, each cheering for their son, and each boy hoped to show his folks that he would be the one. The whistle blew and off they flew like chariots of fire. To win, to be the hero there was each young boy's desire. One boy in particular, whose dad was in the crowd, was running the lead and thought, "My dad." would be so proud. But as he speeded down the field and crossed a shallow dip, the little boy who thought he'd win lost his step and slipped. Trying hard to catch himself, his arms flew every place and missed the laughter of the crowd. He fell flat on his face. As As he fell, his hope fell too. He couldn't win it now. Humiliated, he just wished to disappear somehow. Now, doesn't this sound familiar to life? Right? But as he fell, his dad stood up and showed his anxious face, which to the boys so clearly said, get up and win that race. He quickly rose, no damage done behind a bit, that's all, and ran with all his mind and might to make up for his fall. So anxious to restore himself to catch up and to win, his mind went faster than his legs. He slipped and fell again. He wished that he could quit. He wished that he had quit before with only one disgrace. I'm hopeless as a runner now. I shouldn't try to race. But through the laughing crowd, he searched and found his father's face with a steady look that said again, Get up and win that race. So he jumped up to try again, 10 yards behind the last. If I'm to gain those yards, he thought, I've got to run real fast. Exceeding everything he had, he regained eight, then 10, but trying hard to catch the lead, he slipped and fell again, defeat. He lay there silently. A tear dropped from his eye. There's no sense running anymore. Three strikes. I'm out. Why try? I've lost. So what's the use, he thought. I'll live with my disgrace. Then he thought about his dad, who soon he'd have to face. Get up, and Echo sounded low. You haven't lost at all, for all you have to do to win is rise each time you fall. Get up, the Echo urged him on. Get up and take your place. You were not meant for failure here. Get up and win that race. So up he rose to run once more, refusing to forfeit, and he resolved to win or lose, at least he wouldn't quit. So far behind the others now, the most he'd ever been, Still, he gave it all he had and ran like he could win. Three times he'd fallen stumbling. Three times he rose again, too far behind to hope to win. He still ran to the end. They cheered another boy who crossed the finish line and won first place. Head high, proud and happy. No falling, no disgrace. But when the fallen youngster crossed the line, and I want you to think about this this cloud of witnesses rooting us on as we run our race. I want you to think about the father who looks down. And loves us and cares about us and sees us fall flat on our face. And I want you to think about this as we read these last words. But when the fallen youngster crossed the line in last place, the crowd gave him a greater cheer for finishing the race. And even though he came in last with head bowed low, unproud, you would have thought he'd won the race to listen to the crowd. And to his dad, he sadly said, I didn't do so well. To me, you won, as Father said. You rose each time you fell. I know that's got a great human message to it, but I'm telling you that our Father in heaven watches as we run our race. And the only way we can lose the race is to stop running, to give up, to quit, to turn our backs on Jesus, or climb off of his back and try to do it on our own. Friends, I don't know where you are, my hunch is some of you stopped running. Some of you stopped running. Or some of you have decided you can take care of it on your own. Or some of you have decided God doesn't care enough to intervene right now, so I'm going to run a lap for him until he can catch up with what I want him to do. Friends, the only way to fail in the eyes of the Father is to not trust Christ, stay on his back, and just keep running the race. He's won the war. The victory is sure. Ours is simply to get up tomorrow and join the race, join the battle once again. Pray with me. Father, in Jesus' name, we turn this time over to you and simply ask that you would honor it. Moving, challenging, convicting, building up, breaking down. Have your way in these moments. May we be obedient to the movement of the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.